0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I find it so contagious and uh, yeah, just such good medicine, just even to give a Dharma Talk about Mudita, appreciative joy. I mean, you should really try this with a good friend. It's a pretty radical thing. Just to, in, You might even arrange it ahead of time. Hey, let's have dinner or let's take a walk and let's just talk about what we appreciate. And it doesn't have to be like what we appreciate in each other, although that might come up. Because you know how it is, especially you know those of us who are getting older. It's like we get together and we complain about the body. I've had this sinus cold, cold uh, infection now for a couple weeks, and I had the same thing in August, so it's just kind of hanging on, dragging me down. And, oh, and then my foot, I like got caught my spokes in spokes of my dad's bike when I was five years old. It's been really bothering me. I think I have arthritis in my right foot. And even when i And then I got this... You know, it's like, and that is just so well-greased, to uh, just one thing after another. And then, you know, somehow we make this seamless transition to talking about politics and what's wrong with the world, you know. And then and then there's like that negativity, that critical mind builds a head of steam and it's like, we're just finding stuff to complain about, to criticize, to catastrophize about. That is just so easy. And, uh, I mean, at some point, the whole social media news world realized what a great business plan that is, right? And it's just like built on this, the fear and the negativity around the opposite of mudita, which is the complaining, the embittered, the critical, the negative quality, you know, that... Way. I mean, we all have that tendency to some degree, some of us maybe more than others. And so I really recommend that you explore. I found this of the four qualities of the heart, the divine abodes, the Brahma Viharas. We have that basic goodwill, that basic friendliness, this capacity for friendliness. Hopefully, you know about that. So in Buddhism, it's called metta. Usually it gets translated as loving-kindness. It's an okay translation, but it's good to have a few, even benevolence, goodwill, friendliness. And then, you know, when they're related, so when friendliness runs into suffering, it's compassion. And when that friendly heart runs into somebody who's happy or something that's beautiful, then it's appreciation or mudita. And when it runs into something that's confusing or ambiguous or we don't know what to do, then it's the beautiful quality of equanimity. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's up or down. But I can be here. I can be intimate. I can be all in. I'm not afraid of ambiguity or uncertainty or confusion. It doesn't have to be a cause for me to close my heart because I know how to relate with this beautiful quality of equanimity. Like, who knows? The heart could still be open and sensitive and responsive. There's a great... uh, This is from one of the later Buddhist traditions. Um, It was a Tibetan teacher. So out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But it's just a nice way... I'll share a few ways that people talk about how these four beautiful qualities of the heart work together. Out of the soil of friendliness, metta, loving kindness, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered with tears of joy, that's buddhita, that I'm going to talk about tonight, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful tree of compassion, watered with tears of joy, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. And Venerable Jnanapanika Tara, he's a Westerner who went to Sri Lanka a long time ago. He's dead now. But there was this group of Westerners that went to Sri Lanka in the 50s, even maybe 60s, I forget when the, they first arrived, but um, some actually, I think, before the 50s. And they became really important translators of the early text, the Pali Canon, that all of us are benefiting from. One of them was. I think he was from Germany, originally. Um, But he wrote an article about these four beautiful qualities. And here's how he describes how they relate to each other. Love, and he's talking about metta here, love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference, <clears throat> and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation until equanimity has reached perfection. Compassion urges it to enter again and again into the battlefields of the world. Sympathetic joy, or this mudita that I'm talking about tonight, sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens the stern appearance it is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one. And so many artists, you know, over the many, many centuries, ever since Buddhism ran into Greek culture, you know, and Greeks were kind of obsessed with their statues. This is way back in uh, the few centuries after the time of the Buddha. And uh, they, you know, just competing there in that place between India and, and Greece, uh, they started having statues of the Buddha and they always wanted to capture that the happiness, but that very balanced, serene happiness. So, you know, you see these, this one a little bit less than some of the others, but just how to, like that, that sort of subtle inner smile, yeah, that, that evokes a sense of being really intimate, not disconnected, not oblivious, that, uh, okay. And in all of my own personal deeper insights over the years, I often say this, that the the takeaway always is for some inexplicable reason, it's okay. All of it. Which clearly on the surface it's not okay, you know, when you look and connect with others and even our own lives. But the aftertaste of deepening spiritual deepening insight is it's okay the mess is okay the meanness is okay the sharpness the heaviness the beauty it's all okay that doesn't mean it should be this way it doesn't mean we shouldn't do something to make the world better it just means that right now as it is it's okay and that's really what, why in this statement that I just read is really centering around the equanimity, which in a way in the tradition, in the early Buddhist tradition, is considered the real depth of love. And equanimity in a way is the flavor of awakening. But it's a kind of love. I, I love that in the tradition how equanimity is like one of the four qualities of love. And I think it's useful because we have this, you know, we have to transform our conditioned idea we have about the word equanimity or use a different word. Because we often think of it as kind of flat and dry and sterile. <laughs> oh, they're, they're equanimous. It's oh, the last thing I want to be I want to be passionate. People don't realize the root of the word passion is you know, suffering, like the passion of Christ. But, but equanimity, we want to understand it and experience it in our own heart as a radiant, uh, exalted, beautiful quality of the heart. Real. It's the quality of the heart that knows how to be in the moment, show up, so that our response, how we show up in the world, what we say, how we respond, it comes out of that intimacy that equanimity allows for. So let me just read that again. Love or metta imparts to equanimity, equanimity, its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference, right? That's the stereotype we have about equanimity. And he writes, it keeps us from indolent or selfish isolation, right? Because there's so much suffering, I'm just going to hang out over here in this corner because it's such a mess. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and and again into the messiness of the world. He says battlefields. I think messiness might be a better word there. And then lastly, he says, sympathetic joy gives equanimity, the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one. And it's so easy to mistrust joy. Like that may be for some of you, some of us, That may be our first step in exploring mudita, appreciative joy, is just in your own heart to reflect, you know, to a day, while you take a walk, sitting there on the couch. You know, why am I afraid of joy? Why do I mistrust joy? What's the danger of letting my heart experience joy? I've caught myself sometimes, you know, when... Like I- inevitably, it's like somebody like my partner, is appreciating something that on the surface, my mind might think is stupid, you know but but I know it's like i i could I'm so close to being able to appreciate that, but you know I'm above that that kind of thing. <laughs> and it's so good to say, no, no i'm gonna I'm gonna connect with joy wherever we can find it." So if someone's having a, a little moment of humor or appreciation or whatever, I'm going to attune. Looks like that sympathetic attunement. Yeah. Why wouldn't we take advantage of joy wherever it can be found and felt? It just makes so much sense that we would do that. That's why I think more than probably anything, people have pets. Because you know the pets people tend to have are creatures who, you know, you serve them the same thing day after day, and they seem to appreciate it. <laughs> the fervor with which our cat—and I'm sure it's not so unique—you know digs in. You know, we're pretty just two meals a day for our cat, so uh, it's really happy when it gets fed, and just that, you know, like it's something to appreciate. Oh, that's a happy cat. You know, and every time we let it out, when it's, you know, decent weather out, it's happy, you know, and just when it comes in, when it's cold or wet, it's so happy to come in. And it's these little things that are easy to appreciate when you feed the birds. Or you see a friend you haven't seen in a while in that first moment, even though it's a, you know, a complicated relationship and some of the things your friend does, pushes our buttons, but right now... I'm really happy to see you. makes me happy. And just uh, when we reflect about, like, what's the problem with joy? You know, there's a fun story in the tradition. Some of you know this, of course, but I'll just repeat it briefly. Uh, Because the Buddha brought it up, you know, when he was teaching years later, but he remembered a time when he was a young boy, maybe, you know, three or four years of age, And he had this clear memory of just dropping into kind of a beautiful, exalted state where he was aware, but there was no negativity in his mind. And we call that in Buddhism, first jhana. It's it's really defined by the absence of greed, hatred, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt in the mind. When those factors are removed, right, and there's rapture, the state of the first jhana is defined by that bright, joyful, like, ah, right? So this is, you know, sometimes when people hear first jhana, they think, oh, this, I mean, there's, there's kind of a debate in general in Buddhism about, like, what is first jhana? And some people have this uh, idea that first jhana, you're so removed from sense experience that you don't hear, you don't feel the body at all. But there's uh, other understanding scholars that uh, dismiss that point of view. I mean, clearly you can have those deeper states of concentration where the mind is so removed from sense experience that it's like even thought is just way off in the distance. It's like he, the mind is so quiet it can't even generate a thought. And there's a body, but there's no... So, it's, like, it's not like the nervous system can't feel, but the mind isn't paying attention to it, or hearing, or seeing. It's really withdrawn, the mind. But when, the, in the tradition, you know, when you look at what's there in the early teachings, the way the Buddha talks about the first jhana is a mind that is dominated by rapture and sukha. Suka is what it sounds like. You know, the Indo-European language, Pali and Sanskrit, are related to our language, uh, Western languages, and Sukha like sugar, right? I think some of you know some of the Romance languages. What's sugar in, like, Su- um, Italian? In, in Spanish,
1: it's Sukha.
0: Yeah, so it's very similar to Sukha. S-U-K-H-A, I think it is. Um, but that's like the happiness of ease, the ease of heart. It's a more... Beautiful, refined happiness than joy, that kind of exalted, energetic, rapture, bright, then there's sukha. So, first John is uh, dominated by the mind, is dominated by rapture and sukha, happiness, that happiness of ease, and, um, and that kind of the mind is really connected and sustaining. Uh, vitaka, vichara, Piti, sukha, right? And not so much the equanimity in the first jhana, because it's like really bright. And so the Buddha remembered a time when he was a kid, and he just, because he had, evidently, you can imagine, uh, he had a, a lot of spiritual tendencies if he's going to become this really wise person. So even at three or four, and he fell into this beautiful state of mind. It was some festival day that the community he was part of was celebrating. So, you know, you can imagine just everyone having a good time, his own mudita as a little kid, like, oh, everyone's happy today, right? It's like a spring plowing ceremony, um, evidently something like that. And so he remembered, and then he had this thought, this is like before his awakening, you know, really striding, trying hard to see what there is to see, to wake up. And then he he thought to himself, do I need to be afraid of that kind of spiritual joy that I experienced way back as a four-year-old? And he answered his own question, you know, his own kind of deep reflection. No, I don't need to be afraid of that joy, that appreciative joy, that the rapture and the happiness of a mind seeing what's, appreciating what's good and beautiful. No, I don't need to be. That's good medicine. And that's like our job. There's not, in spiritual life, there's not just one kind of medicine. There are a lot of medicines. So, Ajahn Sameda wrote this fun little piece about like, uh, you know, sometimes in early Buddhism, and Theravada Buddhism, we can think that all we want to do when we see something beautiful as go, is to think or to understand, or even to sense, like, we could do that right now, like, we could really appreciate the community, or I could be looking around, you could be looking around at, you know, even those of you on Zoom, oh, yeah, aging, sickness, and death. It's going to happen to this body, this person, oh, yeah. And we could just oh, yeah, your particular dissolution, aging, sickening, dying process might look like this, maybe dementia over here, maybe pancreatic cancer, or maybe, you know. And we, we can sound like that's what, because that, that can be a powerful medicine too, like just keeping in mind, keeping right there the truth of impermanence, that however nice it is, it won't always be this way. It's unreliable, the niceness. That we have a center like this, someday might be rodent infested, might be full of mold, might be uninhabitable, this building, as nice as it is now. Or this community, you know, the nice Kamigam community online and in person, there might be a great schism, you know, where half of the community is on one side of an issue and the other is in the other half, you know. We should all be sitting in the full lotus and the other half would be arguing, no, Westerners, it's okay to sit in the chair. People who sit in on the floor are just inflated about their <laughs> flexibility of their body, which is, you know, not anything to do with anything. Or something like that. I mean, clearly people have arguments about stupid stuff and can split a community. Or we can recognize that, well, right now it seems pretty harmonious and I'm going to appreciate that. You know, that this is a harmonious community. It's operated for 30 years without any terrible schisms. And may this goodness continue. May it increase and may it never end. And to realize that sometimes it's good to understand the truth and to keep in mind the truth of uncertainty and impermanence and that nothing ultimately can satisfy the heart. No sense experience can satisfy the heart. But that doesn't mean we don't want to appreciate joy when it comes our way. Sunshine on the skin, or seeing kids playing, or somebody falling in love. You know, and yeah. According to statistics, you know, fifty percent of the people who fall in love are going to have a hard breakup, or whatever the statistic might be. Yeah, that might be useful to bring to mind, but it might also be useful to bring to mind, right now these people are happy together. They seem really happy together. And that makes me happy. And I'm not pretending that it's going to last forever. I don't really know. But they're happy now, and I can be happy that they're happy now. And and really attuned to that expansive quality. Why not? That we have nice clothes to wear, Even something as simple as that. Oh yeah, I can let that touch my heart. So I I encourage you to do sort of some kind of reflection just because, you know, for whatever reason, decided to bring this up tonight, you know, as I'm talking. But just even more in the privacy of your own space, What asking questions like, well, what is my relationship to joy? Where do I find joy? Do I... Where do I regularly connect with joy? And when I'm in the proximity of joy, do I actually notice it? Am I just able to do it now in hindsight? But where do I experience joy and then in that moment I know that I'm seeing what's good? I'm appreciating what's good. I'm appreciating others' happiness, others' success. Where have I noticed that actual experience of mudita? and where am i not noticing it that i can notice it so i could get my like my multiple vitamin you know it's like yeah i need that vitamin of mudita i need it every day and i need many doses of it every day so where am i going to see it and some places will be reliable like there's somebody at work who's just as naturally a generous person and you could appreciate that and you just like you make a point of walking by their office or their desk or where, whatever it might be, and you kind of let them be the symbol that reminds you, oh yeah, there is good right here, and I appreciate that. And I have that, I, I feel the upwelling of that goodness, that sense that you're good, and me seeing that you're good is good, and me appreciating that, I'm seeing that you're good, that's good too. It's like an exponential function. And it really, emotionally, we feel that radiant, expansive quality. That's how you, you know you're doing the recognition of mudita right, is the emotional felt senses expansion like that it's a generosity of the heart it's not a stinginess of the heart right that's why it's the opposite of envy and jealousy and different versions of oh poor me different ways that we might get caught in almost like there's a scarcity of goodness so if i'm appreciating your goodness i'm going to run out of good my own goodness you know it's like And to really challenge this notion, like there's some limit of joy, so I better hold on to it. I can't appreciate what's good because it's because we feel it is a but when we appreciate what's good, we have to directly sense I'm not running out, I'm not losing anything. It's healing. We have to really see that because it can feel like I, I mentioned in that example, like where my my partner might be appreciating something and and to really let myself appreciate. I mean, I might not even appreciate what she's appreciating, but I can appreciate that she's appreciating something, that she's finding joy in whatever they're looking at or seeing or experiencing. Oh, you know, it makes me happy that you're excited about something, that something's making you happy or... and not feel like anybody loses and really challenge that notion like really check it out is anybody losing anything here? is any goodness? is anything running out? (laughs) you know it's like it's almost like we're afraid of being set up as some stooge like I've been appreciating and then I realized it was all a hoax or all like a setup of some kind and uh is that really true? Only if we get sort of swept away into the idea, oh, life is good. No, nobody's saying life is good. Life is what it is. It's There's beauty and goodness, and there's horror and suffering and mistreatment. It's the whole shebang. It's the whole range. It's always been that way. probably always will be that way. Who knows, but... But the, the practical, functional question is how can we relate to the good, the beauty, the wholesomeness? How should we relate to that? Can we, is it appropriate to take the light in it and to feel that expansive quality? This is from uh, Ajahn Sushita, wonderful Buddhist monk, um, English monk. This is from he's got a nice book called Meditation the Way of Awakening and you can get a digital copy for free online and he has a chapter on mudita he calls he translated translates it as sharing in joy mudita means appreciative or empathetic joy it is the happiness that arises from appreciating other people's good fortune it comes from acknowledging the basic happiness the freedom from pain, fear, or grief that all beings seek. It can be sensed as the buoyancy that occurs when we touch into well-being or whenever a difficulty ceases, even temporarily. Temporarily, right? Like you go home after a busy day and you're home. You can appreciate that. I'm home. Or your partner comes home after a busy day and crashes on the couch. And you could have, oh, the load of the busy day has been put down. How nice. May that release, that feeling, that good feeling of release, may continue, may it increase, may it never end. But we're not pretending that things won't keep changing. We're just sensing, you know, finding a phrase that aligns with that generous wish. I know it won't always be this way, but I want your happiness to continue. I want it to increase. I want it to never end. I know it won't. I know it will end, and it will come up and down. But that wish is wholesome. But if I, this is where it becomes uh, not skillful, is if I have this idea like, oh, so then your life, you know, Like if you're appreciating the child who's having a fun time playing at the playground, you know, and you, I don't want you to grow up. I don't want your heart ever to be broken. And then we fix on that idea, but that's not mudita. That's attachment, right? And that's fear. If if we have fear that their happiness, their goodness might be challenged at some point. So can we just keep it right there with the wish? It's the wish that's actually beautiful. It's not actually what we see when I see my cat sunning itself on these cooler days out on our patio, you know, and just sort of sprawled in the sun and enjoying. You know, you get that sense that he is enjoying the sun. Then that appreciation... That's what's really beautiful. The seeing the cat was the cue for really beautiful emotion to arise. That's what's really healing, the emotion. It's not actually dependent on the cat sunning itself. What it's dependent on is finding something to appreciate, anything. And then realizing the heart can see goodness. Even the seeing goodness itself becomes a cause for appreciation, right? It's really, there is really no end to seeing goodness. Like the Dalai Lama says, when we really practice mudita, we increase our odds for happiness by 7 billion to 1. You know, he's just making a joke about there are 7 billion people on the planet. There's always somebody there's always something to appreciate. Just even plants, grass growing up in the cracks, you know, in the cement, or a little flower finding its way toward the sun. It's really, there's no, you know, when I walk into this place, because so many people did so many things to make this place happen, it was just a a run-down, greasy diner, Uh, That was built in 1950. Most of the building was built in 1950. And we bought it in 2006, and it had gone, the family, the guy who ran it for all those years had uh, sunk into dementia, and the family was just doing its best to run it and renting it up. Anyways, it really had, the building had kind of fallen into disrepair. And, uh, And just so many people, volunteers and paid community members, did all this and some people worked on what color should we paint this and light fixtures and I remember some of you know Scott Russell uh, a community member from long ago we we wanted a a floor where wood would never squeak and Scott just the subfloor he put in countless screws so the floor will never squeak there are a few but basically this wood floor doesn't squeak when you walk on it and all these little touches and it's for me it's just like endless mudita you know and the person who carved that beautiful carving over there the wood that the statue's on and she also made this and made the beautiful donation bowls made out of wood Uh, Cecilia Schiller a wonderful wood carver did the sign out you know and the piece uh, the threshold under the door there that Uh, Somebody did, Ross uh, Peterson, I think, did. Um, Yeah, just so many different things. And the doors that were donated, and Damon who put in all the windows, and David also It's like endless appreciation. And it's like so much of the world, like you may have all kinds of issues with the medical world, and you could spend forever criticizing Western medicine, but there are probably times in your life when you've been really appreciative that the doctor knew what they were doing and knew what medicine to give you or knew how to remove what needed to be removed or sew up what needed to be sewed up or, or for a friend of yours or something like that. Or that we have roads. There's a great line in a poem, I think by this uh, Polish, I think they she won the. Nobel Prize in literature, I'm forgetting her name, but I think one of the, no, no, it's Pat Snyder, a different poet, but they have a line, uh, I think the poem is called The Patience of Ordinary Things, and there's a line there in the poem that's something like, have you ever seen something as generous as a window? I love that. It's just like appreciating a window that we can have that connection you know, through 99% of human existence on this planet, where we slept at night, you know, caves and under blankets and huddled around each other, you know, not as pleasant as the places we get to sleep these days, most of us at least, and not everyone, of course. One more paragraph here from Ajahn Sushito. It's good to consider what gets in the way of this natural joy. Factors such as perfectionism, performance drive, and goal orientation will have, and he uses this Pali word, arati, but it can be translated as critic, will have the critic side effect, unless they're balanced with appreciation. Meditation itself gets tense when we expect results and neglect a sense of appreciation. So it's important to cultivate a sense of respect for the aspiration and commitment that gets us to meditate in the first place. I generally advise meditators to reflect and dwell on the goodness that is already there in terms of their ethical sensitivity and integrity and let the heart fill with that at the beginning of the meditation session. Effort requires nourishment. It is the common sense measure of putting gas in the tank when setting out for a journey. Right? And I love this idea about appreciative joy like it's as gas in the tank. So it's like, I'm not going to let myself leave the house or the home if there isn't a quality of appreciation. The active capacity of seeing good. It's like, we can imagine that I'm not really good for anyone, not really going to be good for my own well-being or the well-being of anybody else unless I have that basic human functionality of being able to see and appreciate the good. Otherwise, I should lock myself in the closet until I can do it again. You know, oh yeah, this heart is capable, actively in this moment, capable of sensing good, appreciating good, sensing beauty, sensing what's wholesome, and feeling the upliftment because it's contagious. That's what our world needs. Not in a sentimental or disconnected way, but just in an ordinary way. There is good. So I have more I can say, of course, but maybe I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from some of you online, some of you in here in the room. And those of you online, you know the way to do this, just uh, raise your digital hand to let me know that you'd like to speak or if you don't know how to do that, it's really okay just to unmute yourself. We'll hear you here in the room. I'll put the mic so that your, your voice will go through the PA system. And those in the room, I can repeat your comment or question, but it's even better if you're willing to come up front. I won't put the camera on you because I'm recording for the YouTube channel, but we'll hear your voice because I can hand you the mics and the people in the room and people online will be able to hear you. So if you don't mind coming up front to sit, that's great. Yeah, your own experiences of where you experience joy regularly, how your mind-heart connects, what that is like for you to be appreciating the good, how that affects your life. Yeah, Robert, you want to start out? Uh, yesterday I returned from New York early in the
2: morning, and I was in the airport. Got there early, and uh, as I was sitting just like this, um, a bird came up and came right down with my foot. And so I'm watching it. I say, "It's going to run away if I get my camera." It didn't run away, so I got my camera and i told me it. Obviously, it was a sparrow. That uh, my friend Dave was a birder a house sparrow and uh, I had like five minutes of this bird on the floor I did it on my knee and I had no food and it uh, finally went away and I felt so bad because now I'm going to carry food or something so there's <laughs> <laughs> no, no. A it, was a little, uh, it was really fantastic I had like five minutes on my camera of this bird sitting around my knee looking at me and uh, it was just one, and then
3: Yesterday I went to the
2: ball game with my friend Dave and uh, the same bird. And, and we were listening to the uh, Star-Spangled Banner and uh, I looked at it and he was very, very serious. And I knew what was happening because it was happening with me too. There were tears rolling up in the eyes. Every time we do that, and, and certainly in a public situation like that, uh, our depth of love for this country and for the struggles we have in it It's just profound. And lastly, um, I just left the uh, Wedge Co-op and
0: Molly, who was my checkout person, was just the most perfect smile, just so pleasant. You see how that's contagious, listening to Robert? It really is contagious. And it's such a gift all around to do that. And like, and Robert's story reminded me when I was out at uh, a long retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, I was doing walking practice outside and I got to the end of my lane and I see this bird coming directly at me, just flying, like from like 70 feet away, but it's just coming, coming. And you know, I'm just standing there and I'm really sensitive because it's the middle of a long three month retreat and I'm just like seeing, seeing. And then at some point, there's just this freak out like, that bird is going to hit me because it was expecting food. And then I realized the whole, this is like one of my longer retreats, first time out there, that for decades, people have been feeding the chickadees. And so they started to equate a person just standing in the woods with food. And this is a perfect example where my uh, when I finally got what was going on, because then I'd start noticing what other retreatants were doing, you know, holding sunflower seeds in their hand and having the chickadees land. I was thinking like, They're supposed to be retreatants. Come on. Be a good good Buddhist. You know, you're indulging in this. And it was just this negativity. It's like, and then finally I realized, I'm going to try it. And it it was like such good medicine. And I didn't do it obsessively every day, you know, because that can happen and I People do get carried away with it. Like, it's, it's like, Uh, Robert joked now every day you go I mean every time Robert travels he's going to have his pockets filled with sunflower seeds you know and then we can panic oh I forgot the sunflower seeds and get back in the taxi take me home (laughs) (laughs) got to get my sunflower seeds. it's just in case There's a bird but uh, it's just yeah finding these places to delight in life yeah who'd like to go next? other thoughts online here in the room questions too of course i have a question yeah
1: um my question is uh, about joy and feeling like you can't trust it or what's the i was just thinking of um rewiring uh, for happiness and uh, <coughs> book talks about, um, actually in the book that we read in the mindfulness and depression group talks about how um, the primal brain doesn't, um, is always on a threat lookout. And that's why you can have this wonderful day and then someone cuts you off on the freeway, you come home and ask, oh, how was the day? And it was it was awful, it was this person, it's this constant vigilance because that's our primitive mind taking over and that there is the, um, that we can rewire or put new neural pathways into our brain by always noticing the joy and the goodness. Like It actually can change uh, the wiring of, of your brain, of your mind, physically, and, and then I was also thinking. I went to this eagle center last week, and I never knew that eagles um, are—they don't mate for life. In fact, it's the opposite. They'll just have sex with anyone that shows up. Well, that's an eagle. <laughs> um, and there are loners, and they will attack other eagles. So they're all about being very vigilant all the time looking everywhere, where is the threat? And I feel like that's our primal brain. Like that's where we go naturally. Um, so I don't know, if you could just talk or about that. Why do we have, is that the primal brain? Is that, or is that just being neurotic?
0: Yeah, I don't know if people online could hear what Jennifer was saying, but basically, um well-documented studies of these because it's selected for in the evolutionary process this mind that sees threats or as Ajahn Amara, one Buddhist teacher says, uh, the mind, it just uh, is sensitive. Can I mate with it? Can I eat it? Or will it eat me? Like that's what it's interested in. So that's what it sees. And this seeing threats is very much part of the survival process. But it doesn't make us happy and it doesn't make us wise. It makes us, like you were saying, Jennifer, it makes us vigilant in that uh, fear-based way, you know, where we're always looking for threats. And even when things are going well, like we've got the ice cream we want, have we noticed, you know, we're looking at the other, send uh, ice cream dishes that other people got. Maybe they got a bigger dish or they got a flavor. Maybe I should have gotten that flavor or I'm almost out and they're just starting. You know, it's interesting how we ruin really nice experiences by what we pay attention to. And it's really good to start getting more clear and honest about that. And then, like you said, suggest Jennifer start making different choices because... The mind is constructed how it's already constructed we can't do anything about the tendencies that have already been laid down but how we we're relating right now are laying down new tendencies so we're either reinforcing old grooves that may be less than wholesome or maybe we can be establishing new groups new tendencies that really do lead to happiness or well-being for ourselves and for others yeah, that's the idea.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to address that one um, real quickly. And that is one of the ways that I kind of use this is to have appreciative joy for all the moments I have remorse for. So if I think of a real mean moment, a real unkindness with a sibling when I was little, I bring joy to it that I see that now for what it was. And that makes me feel really like I've turned the dharma wheel on my own condition and I, I've been doing a lot of work on metta so I did a lot of mudita for my, for this uh, loving heart which I cultivated and having appreciation for kindness is just like a real high of like achievement it, it's because the object I don't even call it my heart because it's made up of all hearts so I just call it the heart, like this heart here which isn't, I don't own it this heart, have I have appreciation for its kindness and then it makes me feel like I'm walking with this cultivated heart and lastly, I do think there is a part of our brains which is called, conditioned out of us at least, I'll talk for myself when I was little, I had a million and one flying dreams which were just so miraculous if you've ever had one, you never want to wake up and then In school, I had so much exuberance. I thought the whole world was so hilarious. Everything made me laugh so much that I had to go to the coat room every single day because I just could not control. And I really, it all got entangled, this extreme joy, with also some anxiety about social things. And it all got tangled up together. But underneath it, I do think that as little babies, there is a conditioning. You can see it when you look at a baby's face, that it just makes you smile. Like there is something innate about us if it wasn't pounded out by socializing that I believe is the opposite of the amygdala and that's what the Buddha I mean the Dalai Lama I
0: think lives in that
3: spot
0: (laughs) yeah thanks sense. and I loved what you said right at the beginning about um, even those places where we've been hurt or where there's resentment we can be really appreciative that we see it. Because, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Because now we can work together, you know. We can work towards healing. Yeah, very beautiful. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, please. And you're next,
3: all of you online. We haven't heard from someone there. I'll make it, I'll make it quick in that case. Uh, my name is Spencer, and uh, I recently stopped drinking. And I work as a bartender, so, like, sometimes when I get off work, like, the the custom would be to, like, go out and do that whole thing or whatever. But, like, what I've been really cultivating and what's really, like, helped me out, Mudita lately has been, like, coming home, and my girlfriend's a teacher, so she has to wake up in the morning, and, like, after experiencing the temptation when I come home, I've been really grateful, like, not having to get myself together, and, like, not having to Breathe and spin and do all stuff, and when I wake up in the morning, I'm not sick, and I've been really appreciative of like after after that temptation like rises and falls. I'm like actually this is better. I've been really appre- It's like when you get sick, and then when you're not sick anymore, you feel healthy and you feel great, and you're able to appreciate that. So like if it, that's, and I appreciate you framing it as a medicine because it's really helping me out my like journey. And last thing I'll say is, like, my meditations, even if I'm struggling in my meditation, since my recent memory, I have, like, all the sickness and stuff, I'm able to say, at least I'm not messed up right now. At least I'm not sick. I'm doing better than I was. And I appreciate that. (laughs) Thanks
0: so much. That's a
3: beautiful, powerful testimony.
0: Yeah. I mean, just the fact that we can make these kind of changes in our life. It's really beautiful. And and like when we look around the room or sense the people online, you know, that we've all, just the capacity for refraining, like I could have really acted out. I could have really said something to that person that would have hurt them. And I didn't. And that was good. And I appreciate that I had that Whatever, that moral clarity, not, to not say that, to refrain from doing that. Yeah, may that goodness continue and increase and never end. We have time for maybe one more sharing. Anybody online have a thought to share with the group? Okay, I'll open it to the people in the room. Anybody in the room want the last words? Trace, you want to talk about you appreciating your dogs? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, one thing to appreciate is Kyoko uh, Kariyama and Patrice, one of our, two of our long, long time teachers, <laughs> Dharma teachers here at the center, they do an annual Day of Remembrance. A really beautiful thing that happens at the center every year. Are you going to also do it online? Is it available? Or is it just in person? Just in person. Um, but it's for anybody, really, but especially those who have maybe had a significant loss, Recently, or in the last 10 to 40 years, and you just want to <laughs> do the healing that is what we all want to do, or support those people who are processing loss. Really nice to be together with everyone tonight. Yeah, so wishing everyone a good week and lots of mudita for showing up, and just let's keep finding it as we move and I'll take our trip home.